Hello and welcome back to The Forever Student. This show is aimed at providing you with the tools and resources to become the best version of yourself. So I'd like to thank you for joining us today for another special episode. Today we have Richard Fitzgerald on the show. He's a good friend of mine. He is also the CEO and founder of Augustus Media, which are the publishers of Love in Dubai, Love in Saudi, and Smashy TV. He has worked in media and advertising since 2006 at a variety of agencies across Ireland, England, and the UAE. He is also an endurance athlete. And what we're going to talk about today is his journey as an entrepreneur, his day-to-day, his lessons, his failures, but also a bit on the endurance side. How has being an endurance athlete impacted him as a person, impacted him as a business owner, as a human being? So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please welcome Richard. Rich Fitzgerald, welcome to The Forever Student. Thanks for having me on, Stefan, long time listener, first time guest. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And uh, just for everyone listening, we're recording this in Rich's studio. Um, He is a successful entrepreneur. And um, what we're going to talk about today is entrepreneurship. And we're going to talk about his experience with endurance training, with endurance racing. So the first question is, in regards to your journey as an entrepreneur, where did this initial interest start? Uh, well, I started this business seven years ago, kind of September 2015. And I had a career, almost 10-year career in uh, advertising agencies. Uh, but if we stretch back, when I went to school in, in Ireland, uh, there was times during the education that you had opportunities to do startup projects and business projects and that was of interest um and and then i would have uh during my career have restless nights and thinking oh why why don't i do this why don't i set up this agency why don't i why don't i do this or whatever so that was always kind of there but it wasn't a focal point and even now i don't necessarily see myself as an entrepreneur i see myself as a business person and uh, an employee of the company uh, you know, we didn't go down the VC route, you know, we, alhamdulillah, we're profitable after two years and we keep reinvesting in the business. So I, I see it more as, in, I always saw myself as entrepreneurial within the agencies I was working in. Uh, I wanted to do social media in a digital agency in Ireland in 2007. They wouldn't do it. So I joined the social media agency in London. Uh, we are social. And then after that, the next sort of five years, it was building being part of and building social media departments within media buying groups. And that essentially was entrepreneurial. Like that was setting up SBUs, uh, you know, doing business plans, uh, pitching to the CEOs, hiring, recruiting, managing your own PL. Uh, so I was very much running a business within a business. And often that is that was harder because there's politics and there it doesn't necessarily align but what I was doing didn't necessarily align with the original business. And sometimes that's harder because you're trying to convince people that, no, you can make money this way. You can make margins through community management. It doesn't just have to be on volume media spend and things like that. And I remember sitting with global people saying, why don't we, why don't we lean more into this side of stuff? Why don't we lead more into content creators and things like that? 
and they kind of look at me blankly and, and go, well, we're a media buying company, you know, and it kind of, um, so the entrepreneurial part can be harder than, uh, you don't have complete control. Uh, not that you ever have complete control, but, uh, so, uh, so now, you know, running this business, definitely the entrepreneurial part of that is, is here. Uh, but I don't necessarily see myself as a perennial entrepreneur, as someone, I want to build this as legacy, as long-term, um, legacy business, not for me, as long-term. So I see that as the perennial part of business, as opposed to uh, someone who's always got a new idea, who wants to create loads of businesses. Um, having said that, that, you know, I would be bored if I wasn't trying new things within this business, but I think you can do that by just keeping the business going. Both my parents were business owners, their own businesses. Um, so there's obviously something might've come from that. And, you know, why I do it is, is also, I'm driven by kind of emulating my parents as well. Yeah, totally. And I think for you, I guess the jump from, um, uh, let's call it corporate life to, to what you're doing now, going from an entrepreneur to a businessman slash, let's call it an entrepreneur for, for clarity's sake. Um, I suppose because of that, maybe that jump was a little bit easier than, than for most people. What was that really that transition like for you though? Like going from effectively working for someone to really setting up? It was difficult, Stefan. Like it was a def definitely a difficult life period and kind of a turning point for me. I was 32. I'd I left the big company, became MD of a startup, uh, and I set this up at the same time and put a, whatever cash I had, friends and family into, it was about $160,000 into uh, Augustus, which is Love in Dubai in, September, in that time, that summer of 2015. And uh, I lasted about eight months as MD of the other startup and uh, realized that I had to do this full time. It was losing money. And so... And then for the next year and a half, like we'll talk about endurance, but I had, I had a road bike at the time. I didn't have a tri bike and the frame cracked. So for a year and a half, I had no bike cause I couldn't afford one. I went from a really cushy job with a high salary to barely paying myself what I could like, uh, in when I joined full time in the first of May, 2016. And, you know, like I really didn't like it went from that comfort zone to that real sort of hustling startup thing of not having money basically. And also that fear of failure within the business. It was kind of like, we've got a good audience. I know this stuff. Why isn't it working? Mm. And all the things you have to persist with at that time. And there was the other shift of, okay, I know social media, I know brands, client things, but there is a bit of a shift from being, a marketer to a publisher to a broadcaster i had to adjust that i had to kind of get come to terms with that you know um and you know when when the local newspaper when seven days shut down when we acquired their assets like we we literally became national media council in time approved publisher in uh, you know the only say tabloid in a country of nine million people and i wasn't necessarily prepared for that so um you know Yes, I was prepared to run a business as you, I, I, you know, rightly kind of pointed out that I didn't do this when I was 22. I was, I was, you know, and I was working with 
within and under like seven, eight, nine, ten good business people over the years, if not hundreds, but like direct reportees. Like I had many mentors, many people to kind of, and and I also had a lot of time to get confident and to make mistakes and things like that, both personally and professionally over those years. So there was a lot that I had there. And, you know, being having traveled out of Ireland and, and working in London, I didn't have any inferiority complex when I was setting this up, I was kind of like, well, I could do it in London. I can do it in Dubai. Then, you know, I'm fine. I just need to go and do it. And even still, it was hard. <laughs> so, yeah. And how did you go from losing money? This is always a very interesting question, right? Like, how did you go from losing money to making money? Was it after after you quit being MD of the startup and you really put your head down and focused on on what was in front of you that, like, things started shifting? Yes. And... Yeah, that that graft that, you know, we have a value called tenacity, uh, that being tenacious, like you with the 100K run and like I applied to endurance, that work ethic, uh, and I'll talk more about, you know, the discipline, but that the penny did switch at that time about putting business first. And I'm unashamed about it. I put business before family. I put business before fitness. I was on the bike this morning and I had one hour to go. I had a two hour ride to do. And I knew there was a guest coming in at 8.30. So I finished my ride early to come and meet the guest because I knew the rest of the people weren't greeting him. Business is more important to me than health, than family, than wealth, than anything. I put it first. And it's that sort of uh, discipline and commitment. Like I've no, I've no doubt about it. I would put it before before kids i would put it before family events i put it before weddings and funerals 100 percent, not ashamed about it and so and and that at that time i remember my brother saying to me let's go to the cinema and i said maybe in three years like it, it, it was that that was in my head in 2015 i was like literally and i still have that mentality and but the the kind of more practical side of, of making money so I thought we could make money as a publisher, but it's hard. You're swimming up tide against Facebook dollars and Google stuff. You're against the creator economy. You're kind of like, um, you know, and you don't have any legacy revenue streams. So what do you do? So in, in that summer, I pitched for social media business and luckily won some clients. And, um, you know, so I was able to tick over with a bit of recurring revenue. And by the end of that year, we're a year and a half in. We did a quarter of a million. We had 750,000 page views by December 2016. You know, it, it wasn't an insignificant audience base, but we couldn't monetize. So we started, um, I thought I, it would be easy to monetize. I know all the media agencies, they'll just give us some bookings. It doesn't work like that. You know, this is why I, I don't really believe in contacts, like, you know, but, you know, we were blocked. We were, there was many things you had to sort of earn your right to be a player, you know, and uh, we started a restaurant package. I think it was something like three or 4,000 dirhams for three months for an article with guaranteed 3,000 page views and then social distribution over three months with the argument that restaurants need footfall, so they need more than one message. And that started small revenue. So if you look at it from a restaurant point of view, they might pay 15, 20, 30,000 dirhams a monthly retainer to a PR agency with no guaranteed coverage. And we were giving them, uh, so we, we were going after money and budgets that we didn't know existed, right? The, that PR revenue. 
um, and then we were we started getting some revenue, and then and then just gradually built on it. But it, it, that was the turning curve, and even even um, in 2016, that with Infinity Middle East and with a few others, our social media revenue was 50 70 percent of our revenue, and you know people in the company thought that that was the way we were going down, and I really didn't want to go down that route. I wanted to prove that you could make publishing work. So uh, the more that the Love and Dubai revenue and the the advertising and the audience revenue from um, other types of advertising, uh, more that that increased, uh, I was glad to see that shift in the business because it was proving it was working. Uh, so, and it's been gradual. It's been, you know, um, every year has been 20, 30% growth. Uh, 2017 was the first year that was fully profitable and you know it's it's around 20 percent operating margin and we just reinvest each year and now we're nearly 60 people we uh we have fully owned entities in riyadh in ksa and in egypt and here a jv in pakistan and sudan and just starting with people on the ground in bahrain and doha um, and we'll do 5.2 million dollars this year uh where at the moment we're in 10 percent operating margin and we've launched a streaming service, Smashy, with different channels on that. And the Love and brand was a franchise. We bought out of that. And now there's 16 Love and Cities, uh, 15 Love and Cities and Love and Saudia. Uh, so it's been gradual like that, but it's now it is a robust business. It's a robust media publishing business. Uh, but the same sort of uh the same sort of approach back then now. Like we made a small loss in June. And seven is like, for me, it was like my football team has lost. Mm-hmm. Like it was literally like, no, I'm not just accepting that score. Why the hell did it happen? <laughs> you know, before I went on this trip to Italy for 20 days, I went through fine to come. I was like, this isn't right. There's something not right here. The same approach that we use. And I, I, I identified something that we'd slipped on, which was, which was a, a technical thing on how we do our planning how we do our commissions and incentives that we, that we slacked on one area of that, the sort of um, the, the revenue that you sell versus what you deliver and the, and the ratio between those two things and the momentum that creates in a previous month, that gap was narrowing. It used to be 20% higher and then it was down to 8%. And that was a problem and, and that needed to be fixed. And, you know, the sales team who are new, didn't think that that was the problem because they didn't see how it started. Mm. So, but that, you know, if you, if you don't, if you take your eye off the ball on that stuff, that's where problems start. (laughs) Yeah. And I think your attention to detail is something that is obviously incredibly important, especially in a business like this. And especially when you have months where it's like, what happened? Like, and if you just ask yourself that question without actually doing the work of understanding what actually happened, um, you're in a bit of a pickle. I think one of the key takeaways that I just got from you is that you've you've made a series of decisions which might have seemed um, off in terms of how the rest of the industry operates. Uh, and over the last few years, you've obviously proven that the decisions that you've made um, have been proven very successful and impactful and effective. How have you gone about decision-making? Like, how have you gone about... I suppose it's one, obviously looking at numbers and looking at whatever else, but another part is instinct, right? And another part is like that gut feeling saying, no, 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 guys, this is the right move that we need to take. 
How did you how did you go about that process? Yeah, I think I mean there's a bit of conviction there with decision making, but it comes with the career of uh, having a bit of experience and knowing what you know, so you can make decisions based on your skill set, your experience. And then there's other things where you're making bets, and but you have the conviction to make take those risks. Uh, so a, a bit of both. I think like I think of other business industries when when you see an industry that's obviously successful and you go, well, um, maybe that can be disrupted and startups look at ways of disrupting things, but there's with new innovations, but there's other way of uh, disrupting something, which is making it profitable. Like I look at some companies and I, I kind of go, they're just badly run. Like they make excuses of why they shut down, but they're literally badly run. And you can look across industries like, Say we look at the airline industry. I was complaining about an airline <laughs> that lost my bag, but you know there are low cost carriers. They came about by some by people looking at um, loss making state funded airlines, like in Ireland or wherever, uh, and people running things more efficiently. And that's what we're doing in the media industry. Much of the media industry criticizes and says it can't be profitable, blah, 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 because these things have changed. And we kind of ignore that excuses and we go, no, you can. If you've got an audience, it's up to you to make a commercially viable. We're living in a digital world. So so my my conviction comes from that and the decision making comes from that. We don't do talent management. We don't do events. We literally do digital because the media industry needs that focus on digital and a lot of the decisions come on that, but it also comes from, we have a vision uh, and then the mission is to become the new media company of choice in the Middle East, right? Uh, with data and content. But so that's what that means is that, uh, you know, we want people to choose our brands and choose our shows, et cetera. We've, we've, we specifically go after that sort of 18 to 35 year old kind of millennial audience so if you see on Love in Dubai, that's how we speak. We speak in adulting jokes and memes and things like that. And even with Smashy as well, we're not speaking to 14-year-olds and we're not speaking to 40-year-olds. They can consume, but we're somewhere in the middle. So that's one of the choices. But, but another choice is the Middle East and North Africa. It's fully convinced that this region can be an emerging market again. I look at the GDP growth of the UAE and compare it each year over 40 years with the UK. It's growing faster. Now, people will jump to conclusions and say X about energy and blah, blah, blah. No, there's more cash and services. What is GDP? What is economy? It's services and products. And there's more of it circulating here at a faster rate than perceived developed countries, right? That compounds and people can have all their views in the world or whatever. Um, and that can spill over now with the new type of trade agreements that are happening. So there's conviction there. It's conviction in that bet, right, That of the Middle East and also in the youth of the region as well. So digital, branded content IP and the Middle East. Digital, everything digital. Programmatic is hard. What we're doing now the studios that were here, it's a text audio and video studio. It's not a TV studio. It's not a press room. It's not a radio station. We spent a million dollars building this space, right? Uh, all through free cash flow and investment because this is what we believe in, right? And we believe in branded content and, and IP uh, and and the region. And when when there's that conviction in those three things and there's that conviction in 
in doing something over 30, 40 years, it makes decisions a lot easier. And it makes the mistakes a lot easier because it's always, okay, one step forward, two step back, but it's always towards those two things. They're the alignment. What do you think sets you guys apart from others in terms of, let's say, your, your competition? Can you be more specific? And, yeah. So just in terms of the way that you, maybe we can talk about your culture here. Maybe we can talk about the way you operate. Um, because I'm sitting in this place, which is super impressive. You've got, you know, your employee count has, has increased dramatically over the years. You've grown incredibly well. Um, it's hard to do that in business, right? It's hard to do that in the business that you're in. What has kind of set you apart as a business and has allowed you to grow this fast? Yeah, look, I think um, we, we've been able to grow because there's a good economy in the UAE. We've been able to grow because we came 15, 20 years after people who'd all, who set it up for us. Like a lot of credit goes to that. Like you can't, people think you can create a business in the white ocean or whatever. It's harder. It was harder for us in Saudi Arabia because there was no market there. You know, we were four years ahead of ITP, et cetera, in Saudi, yet they were 20 years ahead of us in the UAE, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is weird, right? But, you know, a lot of, like, you, could, you market entry is interesting. And we came in 2015, but there was already a whole ecosystem. There was media agencies. There were restaurants. The, the developments were built and the cafe had opened and the cafe owner had marketing budget. Like, you can't, we can't take all the credit. Like, and... You know, um, but on the other side, why are we a why are we different? Because of what I just mentioned, but also uh, we really focused on digital again. You know, um, we didn't. If you set up a media company in the 1850s, you'd likely do print. If it was the 1920s, it would likely be radio. If it was the 1960s, it would likely be TV. So now you could choose just audio, you could choose newsletters, or you could choose streaming. We've decided to choose a mix, yeah. and. Um, that makes us a little bit different. Um, and, I, and, you know, we're, we're in a market where there isn't that much competition. Um, there really isn't. And I think that that's, there needs to be more innovation in media. You know, people make, again, excuses of why not. But when, you know, there aren't that many people with Substack accounts here because people don't read in the Middle East. I'm doing quotes. <laughs> but, but people do read. And, like... I think there needs to be more innovation in media. And, you know, we look at uh, modern media companies, anyone who started in the 21st century in the US or the UK, and how do they approach it? And that's where we look at it. There are, you know, I consider Mofora in Cairo one of the pioneers here. I consider uh, U-Turn, which is Webedia, uh, Diwani, that kind of mix. And then what Nas Daily is doing on, on that side as well. So although they've gone down a bit of a, a tech ed tech route as well, but there's different entities there. So the, the, those are, are kind of competitors. I don't necessarily consider legacy media competitors, although, uh, uh, although we might be vying for consumer attention with what they produce and we might be vying for ad spend for what they produce. But in terms of business and um, doing the mix that goes into our type of business, then I think we're different, you know, like, you, you know, who are your competitors? If you're a restaurant, is it everyone who serves food? Mm. And, uh, you know, so 
we definitely uh, and and that we also don't consider a podcast network a competitor we don't consider a youtube creator a competitor like they are closer to being a competitor than um a media quest or an itp or a college times because of the new media space they're in but it depends on what what who you're looking at us from in terms of competition um but yeah anything but you know another thing as well as that focus on running a business you know yes we are in this space and we want to create things that go viral and we want to create branded content we want diversified revenue but you know it's the 2nd of august and is it the 2nd or 3rd second, <laughs> second. <laughs> oh i shouldn't say it on a podcast but uh, but you know right now my focus is on how much output that we deliver in the month of july versus what will the market pay for it like like a restaurant how much food how many people came in right and i know it was up i don't have the exact number we get it on the 8 but we have our monthly targets and we were up 20 or 30% on june and i think that makes us a bit different because we're really focused on uh profit margin revenue uh output and we make going back to decisions as well uh i study business i i read books i I try to understand I studied economics so I try and understand someone said to me on the trip recently you know business is about people that's part of it it's about capital allocation and and resource so you can make a choice between investing in a new hire or a software or a studio but you but that's what business is it's about uh versus what um what you can monetize versus what would the market pay for what you're producing so uh so all our decisions are about that and what we try and do our our CFO is really good at that with me but what we need to do is empower the whole team so while his forecasts and budgets are there now we have we've always had these but separate documents for each department to let them make decisions you know does an extra hotel stay for relocation does that stop moving one person for 2 days from this office to Riyadh and Cairo so they can have face to face time with the person that's reporting into them to to avoid conflict issues 3 months down the line in a busy Q4 like it's that detailed and how much budget do we have in that quarter if we only have 10000 dirham for travel and it's a 1000 dirham for a ticket then what if 26 year old here met 25 year old over there so they don't bitch at each other in a month's time and you have to resolve it like we we attention detail in that level obsessive over it you know um the guys want to have a party here in september and they want 50000 dirhams budget i'm thinking i've got i that's comes out of the marketing budget so show them the tracker and show them what 10000 dirhams on digital revenue did last month versus what you're doing for that etc um so you know that that i think can make us different as get and it goes down to the second value i mentioned tenacity but ingenuity uh you know is like creativity but it's believes there's a bit of genius in everyone and it's about empowerment diversity but also recognizing someone's brain can be used so we we're not we're 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 not um we're transparent we don't hide anything it's not i don't fully believe in the netflix no rules rules culture i don't i don't think that works globally and i think that was a place and a time in the us but i think there's an element of that that radical transparency that they have um but if you tried that in the middle east that sort of um criticizing people 
all the time, it doesn't work. Like people get very offended if there's shame on them or whatever. So I think there's, so, but again, we create a unique culture. There is transparency. There is decision-making, you know, uh, the lady who sits in the reception isn't the receptionist, the office manager, the person who is set, is putting uh, Love in Dubai bags in Dubai Mall tonight for a screening of the new Brad uh, Pitt movie. He's a transport coordinator, not a driver, right? And it, and it kind of comes from that. It's kind of like, well, you can think. You're, you're trusted to think. We're an independent company. Make mistakes. Who cares? Who cares about mistakes? I don't, right? Like you know, we don't get caught up into mistakes. We just move on. Yeah, you should almost encourage mistakes, right? Because otherwise, like, people are not going to think outside the box. People are not going to make decisions. They're just going to try and follow someone's lead. How have you gone about finding those people? Like, how have you gone about hiring effectively? Because I think now you're talking about empowerment and you're talking about creating this culture here. How have you gone about finding the right people that fit that? Um, I, th- I think loads of different ways. Sometimes we hire people who have been in the industry a long time. Sometimes we hire by recruiting the best interns that pass through each year. Uh, you know, in terms of process, we don't use recruitment agencies. Uh, we put ads on LinkedIn and I personally manually go through a thousand applicants, shortlist it down to anyone who's relevant. And then depending on the role, but Seven, this is how we do it. Like we get 150 CVs from LinkedIn from a thousand and we send them a link and they either, either it's an Augustus values questionnaire or it's something else. And then they, and then you get 150 things that didn't just press an apply button. You get 150 10 minute work or 20 minute work. And then you get that down to 30. And then depending on your time, you can do 30 interviews. I did 30 interviews before I left, 30-minute video interviews. And then I got it down to three who were presenting this week for a commercial manager role, right? But I didn't spend 30 hours sitting with someone for an hour, right? But it, for me, part, part of that is a volume game. Now, we have different tricks on different roles. Sometimes we do the task at the end. Sometimes it depends on what the skill set is. Is it a developer? Does it need English and Arabic? But it's definitely a volume game. Many startups say hire slow, fire fast. I think hire fast, fire fast. Yeah. Get them in. See how they work. See what their attitude is. I don't go big on you have to have the right character. You have to have the right values. No. You know, does, if someone's values don't fully align with tenacity, velocity, and ingenuity, that's okay. They're an individual person. I believe these values aren't individual values, they're company values. And they are what, you know, over the years, what I felt is needed to produce work in the industry that we're in. You need to be tenacious. You won't get thanks from a client. You need ingenuity. You need to think for yourself. and You need to be fast. You need to create momentum. When you leave a meeting, you need to create actions. Otherwise, 10 days have passed and you forget what happened in the meeting. Like, these are just standard things. And so... You know, we don't necessarily want someone to know that when we're hiring them. Well, we, you know, it's like putting together a football team. There are different leadership qualities. There are different things. If if there's a left back who just tackles the whole time and clears the ball, then that's someone who who's a nine to six person who leaves. But they do their work and they're smart and they can focus better than others. Great. 
You know, I'm not precious over that. If they're not the typical left back that uh, attacks a lot, okay. I'm not precious over it. Like certain football managers need a certain style, but in in work, I think you need to be a little bit more flexible. Um, and also, if you hire someone, this is the great thing about being in this type of business. You don't have to follow global rules around um, sign off and budgets and things like that. You know, if you want to use Upwork or freelance things, you can. So if you hire someone. Um, and you had in your mind that they needed to be able to do this technical thing. Like say we have a, a broadcast software, like an automation playout software. And I hire this enthusiastic person who's got a film degree in Cairo that wants to do documentaries. Do I, do I micromanage and put pressure on him because he can't do this technical thing that I can't do myself? Or do I hire someone else or do I outsource that skill? So th- this is what we do is if, if someone you don't give someone crap for not being good at one part of the role, right? If they're, if they're overall, if they can't learn, if they, you let them go. But if there's one part where they, you thought that they could, were going to do, which is paid media or SEO, then find someone else to do that. Put 200 quid on Upwork and get that skill done for a while until you can afford someone else to bring it in. But ultimately, you're not then giving that person a hard time and they're not paralyzed at their desk, feeling micromanaged and depressed and creating that toxic environment. No, we don't like that. We don't want that. We don't tolerate it. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that mindset. It's very, it's very practical and, uh, and super efficient and impactful, I'm sure as well. Now transitioning into a topic that I've been really looking forward to discussing with you, which is your endurance training, your endurance training. When did that start? And I'm always curious to ask this, this question, like how did that impact your, your business life? Because now one of the very interesting things you've said is that business is first, right? Health, family, everything else comes second. I, I love that. Um, and the reason I love that, I heard Tom Billio speak about this on Impact Theory, where he was like, for him, his marriage comes first, but his wife is very well aware that he's gonna work 14 hours a day. Right. So it's not necessarily about like uh, it's, it's just that communication between him and everyone else. That's so clear that they know, OK, cool, Rich, we're not even going to ask him to come to the movies. We're not going to ask him to come because we know what he's like. So actually, let me ask you a question on that. How has that been from like a social standpoint or with family or with whatever else? Um, have the people around you been? understanding of that and have have they been accommodating of that or have you also lost friends as a result because one of the things that's happened with me is i say the real ones stay right so your real friends your family they they understand your goals they understand where you're going they understand what type of person you are and they're going to support you right whether you're working 16 hours a day and training three hours a day and sleeping five hours a night whatever it is they're going to be there for you what has your experience been with with that? Because you're very you're an extreme person, right? Like you 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 work extremely hard on everything that you do. So I'm curious to see like how that's impacted your social yeah, interactions. I, I don't necessarily think it's fully extreme. I think it's just routine. Like is is a is a farmer in in Jizan region in Saudi Arabia extreme because he does the same thing 
16 hours a day. Is that extreme or is it just a vocation? I don't feel extreme. You know, I don't uh, push myself too much. I just do what I like and I just do it the whole time. And I know now what it is. Um, so, but yes, the, the funny thing is that people don't understand. And I try and you see how forward I was with it at the start of this podcast. I try and explain. Uh, a friend called me the other day and I tried to tell her like, I was so blunt because it just wasn't going through. It just, it wasn't going through. Like, and she was like, well, you heartbroken once or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, why, why are you like this? And I'm kind of like, no, like you just don't understand. And the funny thing is they don't, um, the real, you know, they, they don't, um, they don't go away. They stay yet. They still don't understand. Mm. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that guy. I don't know him, but his wife comes first. By his example, I think he's just a good communicator. I don't think his wife comes first. <laughs> right? There's a, a book uh, about Rupert Murdoch, and uh, he was in the U.S., and he was trying to get the unions, blah, 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 in the 70s and 80s. Not the later Rupert Murdoch that the media knows now, but when he was really growing his business. And his wife at the time, I think he's had three or four wives, his wife at the time, uh, said after 18 years marriage, he changed his nationality to American while he was still telling Australians that he was Australian. And she said, um, at that point, I knew the lengths he would go to for his business. And I was kind of thinking when I was listening to it, how did it take you 18 years? Like, why, why did, what, like, how did you not know that he would, that his business was more important? Like it, like it was clear, it's obvious, you know, and, but maybe he didn't say it. And I think there's a bit of that. It's about communication. Look, I moved over here when I was, uh, I was in London until I was around 30 to maybe 28. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so the, some of my friends are in Ireland and in London. So by proximity, they're kind of, I haven't had to explain to many people. So it's been a lot easier in Ireland. This would be a lot harder. You have to go to the charity events. You have to go to the rugby match here. I just don't go and I don't have to explain myself as much. Um, you know, if you're surrounded by, by people, you have to explain yourself more. Uh, but no, most people don't understand, which is why I continue to repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do the same thing. I mean, I try to be as clear one, I, I try to communicate it as impactfully as possible. So like if my friends are going out on a Saturday night and are going to have drinks and whatever else, I'm, I'm going to tell them I'll, I'll come for two hours. I'll have dinner with you guys. I'll have a glass of water. And I'm going to leave. And, uh, and you need to accept that because that's the way it's going to be. And, and it's the same with other parts of my life. I think it's just about like hmm. having this very clear communication with whoever's important to you by saying, listen, I'm, I'm training for this 100K race. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more important, right? Like that's that's what I'm going to focus on. That's my number one goal, <clears throat> and um, and people will get behind it eventually. Now, will they understand? Maybe not. Will they have to accept it? You don't have much of a choice, right? Like because it's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> now, with with your now going back to the endurance piece, when did that kick off, and how has it impacted life in general? Yeah, um, my brother's moved back to the uh, place where we grew up and he, his six-year-old is doing running events at the moment. I'm going to do part of the Ironman with her next week. And I was just thinking the freedom that you have in Ireland running around with sports, you know, again, we were lucky, right? Like there's other parts of the world where you don't have the facilities. Okay, we don't have brilliant facilities, but 
I went to schools that I would play three, four, five, six, seven sports. Like my mom would drive us to tennis camps. We had a tennis court in our garden. Like I, I had opportunity to do sport. And so I was really fortunate in that way. And then uh, I wanted to play football. I love football. I still do. Uh, and when I went to university, I started running a bit more. I was running in school, but I started running a bit more. And uh, I liked the team part of football, but I just liked how running made me feel. And I think I did my first marathon when I was 23 in 2007 uh, in London. And I've been doing it ever since. I would have done local races sort of in my late teens and things like that. But uh, so that's how it, it started. And I just kept up doing marathons like Barcelona, Florence, New York, uh, San Francisco, uh, London twice. So I kept on doing those things. And then um, when I was in London, I bought a road bike and I would join, meet up that website groups with strangers and cycle to the coast and get the train back up and just random things like that. Uh, and then take part in a few random events. And then when I came here, uh, say I was here 2012, I would have done a few running events and things like that. And then in 2015, I did a triathlon. Uh, but then I didn't have a bike for a while, but gradually triathlon became the one that uh, stopped everything else. So I don't play five-a-side anymore and I don't play squash or tennis. I, I don't even play paddle and I did back then, <laughs> but I don't, I don't play them because I, I you know, the, uh, there's three disciplines in triathlon, but really there's a fourth, which is a fourth training session like strength and conditioning. And, you know, um, so that's how it started. It was always there. I always like sport. I like watching sport, but I like how it makes me feel. And it, it's even more important to life now because it's the balance. And Stefan, I do, I do multitask. Like I don't, when I'm on the bike this morning on the trainer, I'm looking at our Snapchat shows and I'm reviewing them in Arabic and I'm seeing that they make the changes I suggested before I left and this sort of stuff, or I'm listening to an audio book or I'm going through DMs on one of the loving accounts, like, you know, or something like that. Or, you know, I'm having, after I'm at a race, I'm meeting with someone who also owns a business or et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it's just a natural sort of flow now. It starts um, early morning, you know, four or 5 a.m. And um, like we were just talking before we went on air, I had a training camp in Italy last week, but you asked how much, how intense it was. Well, you know, the coach can only do so much with the body in a week, whatever. You can't push it too much, but you can actually, it reminded me of how much we fit in a day here before work. Mm. Cause over there, if you're an athlete, you can get up at seven or eight. You can, you can have an hour of breakfast after your first session and then your second one at 12. But if you get up at four or five, you can get those two sessions done and be at your desk at eight o'clock, you know, and that that's the sort of I prefer that because it's just more full on. <laughs> yeah. And how has it uh, because one of the things that I've realized now over time and we were talking about this before as well, is that the, the training and the and the journey towards reaching a goal that's that big so even a marathon right it's a big goal to have and then doing an ultra or doing a triathlon or an ironman or whatever like these are grandiose goals what i've realized is that journey of of dedication and and commitment and sacrifice has translated beautifully in the rest of my life so how present i am in conversations because i, because I want to optimize my time how focused i am on my work um, how has that 
translated for you? So like all this training and all this commitment and, and discipline, like how is that translated into running a business, for instance? Yeah, definitely. There's, you know, sometimes you'd wake up and you'd be agitated about something that's bugging you, some email that was sent or something like that. And then an hour later, just by science, just by endorphins or whatever, you feel a lot clearer about it. Um, and then bigger, bigger decisions around recruitment. You know, if, uh, if I go for a three hour bike ride, it's almost magical how things without me teasing over it or having late night calls with friends asking for advice, like it just naturally falls into place. You know, you, you know, you could be stressed out ringing people for advice, but if you just go asleep, do a three hour bike ride, and then you don't need to ask anyone because it's all there. It's just, it just naturally sort of glides out and you go, okay, it's just focus. It's kind of like, right, I need to send that email. I need to make that phone call. I need to speak to that person because that's the thing that's the most important thing now. And once that's done, the stress goes. So in that level, like, you know, I really see the value in it. But if I'm injured, uh, like I was last year for a bit, like, you know, I mightn't feel as good about myself physically or I mightn't be have as much clarity but I'm also trying to be consciously aware of those periods because call it burnout, call it whatever. It's life. You can't be optimal all the time, especially when it's regarding the body. So I always, I always rem try and be influential on my life, not, not just on everyone during those periods as well. And I try and relate to like politicians or war leaders in the past, right? Were they as healthy? Did they have as many supplements and as many things as we have now and as much knowledge? No. Well, how were they How were they successful? Like the guys that we, Winston Churchill with his cigars and all this sort of I was stuff. I just going to bring that up, yeah. How was he successful? Do you think, Stefan, that he woke up in the morning and he, like you and me, have had our workouts and have these clear thoughts and can speak clearly in a podcast when he's speaking to the queen, right? No, he's drinking whiskey and he's smoking cigars. Yet he's still influential. So... You know, so it's important when you're not doing your exercise and when you're not feeling 100% to not go, oh, I'm going to be useless now until mm. I'm back to normal. I think it's like this relentless work ethic, right? Like if you look at Winston Churchill, I literally just watched, uh, I think it's called Darkest Moment or something like that, like the movie about, um, about World War II and a decision-making process at that time. And I mean, he was drinking, he was smoking like, <laughs> constantly, right? He barely slept. And I think it's just like his, the, the goal was so clear and, and the vision was so clear on what needed to be done. And no matter what, he needed to get there. And I think that's what sort of got him through. So even if things, especially for us, not necessarily for him, if things slip through the cracks, um, whether it's exercise, whether it's our diet, whether it's whatever else, like still being able to focus and put in the work is extremely important. Um, and, and one of the, the things you mentioned, I think about, about working out and, and about doing endurance, like one, it, it, it totally clears your mind, which I think you mentioned. And secondly, yeah, from a problem solving standpoint, if you have an issue that you're working with, go run a 10 K and, and see if, if that issue solves itself after 10 K. Cause for me that often I use that as a problem solving mechanism. Like I'm like, oh, how do I, how do I go about this personal problem, business problem, et cetera, I'll just like go for a run. Yeah. And sort itself out. Definitely. Um, I want to thank you very much for, uh, for a very valuable 45 minutes. I think that people learned a lot. Uh, one, about what you do, but also just how, how you run a business, how you go about your personal life, how you prioritize your time. Where can people find out more about you and about your business? 
We try and be transparent on Augusta's social media profiles, uh, post as much as we can. I'm active on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I do a podcast, Dubai Works. I, I, I interview people every week. Um, and yeah, just generally online, Fitzy Richard online. Okay, fantastic. Rich, thank you so much. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you.